Welcome to another episode of the Empower App Show. I'm your host, Leo Dion. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. My company is Bright Digit. I specialize in software development, the Apple space, specifically Swift. Today, I am happy to have Donnie Walls on the show. Hey, Donnie, how you doing? Hey, Leo. I'm, uh, I'm doing fine. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on. Um, so I'm doing, obviously, another recording during the uh, this uh, COVID-19 stuff, and everybody is home. So I am happy to say, and I'm also thankful for you and the folks at uh, your work for keeping your streaming service up and alive because they are using it right now. Uh, I think they're watching, like, Pollyanna, which is not exactly the most uh, famous of Disney products. But uh, I think they're enjoying themselves right now and hopefully quiet during our recording today. So I just want to thank you for keeping your service up and running because uh, it's definitely being used uh, as a working parent right now. That's fantastic to hear. Yeah, I can imagine that it's uh, <laughs> it's a saving grace for a lot of parents out there these days. Yeah, I mean, we, we're pretty good about not uh, abusing the screen time, we have a specific schedule uh, and we do a lot of, I'd rather have they do honestly, like more interactive stuff Yeah. right now. But like when both of us have meetings uh, or one of us is recording a podcast episode, yeah, we, we, we pull up the, we pull up the screen time. Uh, we pull up the streaming services when, when we need to. So uh, yeah, we'll see how this recording goes. I, as long as we don't hear uh, Haley Mills in the background <laughs> or any of the kids, I think we're good. Sounds good. Um, have you, have you guys noticed any like hammering of services right now? Not that I am aware of. No, um, I, I don't have access to like all of the exact numbers, unfortunately. But I'm pretty sure that it's a lot more busy than usual. Yeah, and we actually rolled out to uh, a couple of new countries in Western Europe like two weeks uh, ago. I had uh, yeah, I had uh, Dave. We were on the last episode and he was saying like they just rolled it out to the UK. So yeah, uh, yeah, I'm sure that's helping. Definitely. Yeah. And it, it went, it went really smooth. Um, as we've said internally to each other, if nobody had explicitly told us that we were releasing to new countries that day, I don't think I would have noticed at all. So, yeah. So what, what is your specific job at Disney streaming services? Yeah. So I am uh, an SDK engineer. Uh, that means that I work on an internal SDK that we use for a couple of apps. And it's essentially the glue between our iOS app and our Apple TV app and iPad OS app uh, and our backends. So I make sure that all of the login API calls are formatted as needed and that all the services are stitched together as needed and that we can download media and that kind of stuff. So is that how much is that is Swift, I guess? It's 100% Swift. Awesome. Okay. And that's uh, all front end, I assume? Uh, yeah, basically. Our, our backends are, are not Swift. They are, I believe, Kotlin uh, okay. and Python. Uh, there, there's a Your bunch of microservices. Your Kotlin? Yeah. Oh, wow. Very cool. Okay. The other thing I want to say is uh, whoever does your web front end for as somebody who runs a home-built uh, Linux uh, home theater PC, I want to thank them for supporting Linux uh, as well, because uh, otherwise we kind of would be screwed at this point, because <laughs> uh, that's what, that's where we run at home for our home theater PC, and so we just run yeah. Chrome with Disney, and that works really well. So I'm glad they got that fixed. 
Yeah, I'm not sure if we had Linux support from day one because Linux no, has some no. changes or some differences in how they do DRM. Yes, um, exactly. But I believe that was resolved and now we have support, so that's great. Yeah, thank you again. And one, one question that I was going to ask is, um, do you, as we're going to talk about this subject, this massive subject that I think is super important and interesting, do you guys, do you do any combine with your SDK? Currently not, no. Okay. And that's because of backwards support or is that... Because of uh, just just the way the SDK works, it's definitely because of of backwards compatibility and also a little bit of just how it works and what we want it to be. So the first bit is backwards compatibility. Um, we support, I believe, iOS ten and up for most features. Wow. Okay. Uh, we try to keep it at eleven, but because it's multiple apps that we have to support, it's not just Disney Plus. Uh, we need to have a little bit of being able to run on the older platforms. We don't actively develop features for those anymore. But we, we have RX Swift in it. Okay. And we are trying to eliminate that in a bunch of places because we're considering that since this SDK is used by multiple apps, and if we use reactive programming with RX in this case extensively, we are basically forcing whoever wants to use our SDK to do the same. And so we're currently thinking like maybe we should remove RX because it's an external dependency. Right, right. But at the same time, we are considering combine because it's it's first party, right? So it's it's less of a buy-in for people who want to use the SDK. Yeah, as we've talked about on the show with several guests, like as good as a lot of these solid third-party um, you know, like dependencies are, it's just nice not to have any sort of like third-party dependency if you can get away with it. Definitely, yeah. Especially if Apple decides to do its own thing, you know, and it's difficult to support something like that or for the developers of that third-party dependency to support it. It's just nice to go with a more first-party API. For sure. And I've also noticed in the past year or so that if you're using Swift extensively, you're you're going to run into certain dependencies being on a certain Swift version or a certain Xcode version and that not being entirely compatible with whatever you are running. So even having a handful of dependencies in a huge project where you have multiple frameworks and all that stuff, it can really be a pain to to even keep everything in sync. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Hello, you've probably heard us talk about back-end services that are out there, and we talked about a few episodes ago about using Swift as your back-end with Vapor. And you're probably wondering, what are some great services out there well, the one that I use is Linode. Linode is probably one of the top services out there for setting up a back-end cloud service for your app. Linode offers powerful entry-level virtual machines. They have all sorts of different settings that you can set up, like power and performance, RAM, whether you want a dedicated CPU or if you need a GPU for a lot of different jobs. A very reasonable pricing, $5 to start off. I highly, highly recommend it. If you go to the link in our show notes, that will take you to their website to get you set up and started today. They have services all around the world. Recently, they have a new server set up in Toronto as well. So I highly recommend you check Linode out if you need a backend for your app. Link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening to our show. Now, 
we talked about this before the recording. Like, there's a there's quite the history with Disney streaming services, right? It's not just it was bought out by Disney, but didn't like didn't originally start off as like the Major League Baseball streaming service, and then and and you were saying you were with another company in the in the Netherlands or in Amsterdam as well. Yeah, right. So you have a, like a lot of apps you're supporting. I would assume. Do you know what they are? Uh, so actually, when the company that I worked at initially called the Capitals got acquired just as I joined them. Uh, they kind of handed off pretty much all of their clients to other parties. Uh, so they didn't have to support those anymore. And then Bemtech Media, uh, Major League Baseball, of course, had a bunch of clients as well that I believe now have been placed under the supervision of other companies as well. So they are doing development for them. So we actually don't support as many apps as you would maybe think. I, I believe it's like four or five among which uh, Disney plus ESPN, uh, NHL, I believe we're still doing some stuff for, so it, it's fewer apps than you might think. Okay. Luckily. Okay. So it would be like MLB Disney plus probably and a couple others. Yeah. Uh, and, and even for MLB, I believe we don't do, everything anymore gotcha okay so are you guys all working from home right now definitely yeah do you mostly work from home or do you usually go to an office regularly i uh, usually i go to an office uh so in amsterdam we have a very nice office and it's preferred that everybody works from there i do have one dedicated work from home day just because i like it it's also a nice day to, to get packages delivered to your house and that kind of stuff yeah 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 uh, okay so, so they are open to it, but currently everybody's working from home. The office is basically shut down. We're still allowed to go there, but there's just nobody there. and They don't want you working there. So you're only allowed to get in there for test devices and go back home and work from there. Yeah. Okay. And how, is it, how have you been handling that? Uh, it's it, It's been quite an adjustment, uh, yeah. even though okay. I do work from home one day a week already. Uh, it's very different working from home every day. Yes. And it's also very different that you don't really have anywhere to go once work is done, right? Normally you would maybe go out for dinner or go yep. shopping or do whatever. Uh, but now it's just, uh, it's switching rooms all day from the bedroom to the bathroom. to the office. To the <laughs> do you have room, an office you know? at home? Luckily I do. Yeah. We, ha- we have okay. a dedicated room set up with two desks in it. And uh, yeah, we can really have a proper working environment here. So that's nice. Yeah, yeah, that's what we have as well. And yeah, I think I kind of agree with you. It's it's uh, as we talked about uh, in a previous episode with Peter, with him, it, like the challenge is now having having to work home. Like whereas before there was an option. Also, like everybody is home. Like I'm not home alone. Exactly. Um, as I said previously, and like uh, that that makes it a big challenge. And then just not being able to go out to a coffee shop, like you said, and like, just get out of the house, um, can, can be, can be challenging. So yeah, I, I don't know if any listeners have had specific challenges with that. Cause I've been working from home for like 10 years, but this is different. Totally. Yeah. I, I could imagine it even being different if you were home alone, just not being able to change your scenery every once in a while, even if you don't want to feeling like you can't, to me is exactly a very big difference. And then there's of course the news on all day where, you know, you don't, that's not making you any happier. Uh, (laughs) Yes. You know, it's, it's, it's completely different from a normal working from home experience. So 
Yeah. Yeah. If anybody listening is experiencing trouble and wondering how people do it, uh, this is not what it's like normally. No, this is not not at all what it's like to work from home normally. But I have become quite the expert at video conferencing. If anybody has questions, it's like, oh, what do I do for this? Oh, let me tell you about Zoom. Let me tell you about this app. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's get into it uh, about Combine and reactive functional programming. What exactly does reactive functional programming exactly mean? Uh, so what it means is... So the reactive part of it is to constantly react to what's happening in your app, right? Uh, users are tapping stuff. Users are dragging stuff. Uh, you have data flows going on in your app, and you, you want to react to that in the broadest sense of the word. You want to update your UI if something comes in. You want to update your models if a user does something. Uh, you want to reload your table views if you fetch data. Uh, so really, the the act of doing something when something happens is the reactive part, and then there's the functional part, where you try to do it in a way that is similar to functional programming, where you make sure that everything you do, so every transformation or every mutation you do is isolated. Ideally, you don't mutate anything at all, of course. Uh, but when data comes in from the network, for example, you want to transform that into a model, you want to send that to your UI, uh, and that is all done in small, isolated functions like map, for example. Yeah, that's, it makes sense now that I've used Combine quite a bit. Like now I understand why it's called functional programming. Like you said, the whole, the whole idea of like passing in uh, closures or methods into uh, various methods so that you can transform your data accordingly makes total sense. So I wanted to get a bit into a bit of a like terminology lesson because to a lot of listeners who are more used to MVC or UIKit and how delegation patterns work might not be used to a lot of the terminology that's used in Combine. So probably the first of those uh, is a quote-unquote publisher, right? Yeah. What exactly is a publisher and what does that mean? All right. So a publisher in Combine would be something that will emit values over time. And the, the over time bit is, is really important. That's what makes uh, Combine like really reactive because as something happens, it could happen now and it could happen again in 10 seconds and, and it could happen again like one second after that. Uh, you don't know. So a publisher will emit these values or events as they occur, so, and you can subscribe to them. So you cannot really talk about publishers without also mentioning subscribers. right? So as a publisher emits values, as things happen, the subscriber will want to receive these values and do something. So if you make a network call, you'll have a, a publisher, a URL session publisher, or data task publisher, actually it's called, that will fetch data and emit that data when it's fetched. And then your subscriber is going to receive that data and do something else with it. For example, decode it into a model and refresh your table view. 
Yeah, I love how the API is set up, uh, especially with like decoding. Uh, before I was passing in, like doing the code for decoding, like creating a JSON parser and all this stuff. And then I realized they just have a method for decode where you just pass in the JSON parser and it does it all for you. Yes, for sure. Um, and I, I really, really become more than just the reactive part, but the functional part, I really, um, as somebody who's been doing stuff with like Vapor, for instance, where a lot of that stuff is functional, like it makes total sense, functional programming. I see a lot of the utility of that and I love how they've, no pun intended, they've combined reactive programming with functional programming and it makes a lot of sense how it fits together. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, because this uh, decode operator that you mentioned, that is like really something from functional programming, right? Where you take an input, apply a function to it and get some output from it that you can feed to a next step in your in your whole chain of operations. It's really cool. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things folks have to consider though is where and when they're changing these values. Because as somebody who um, does any development UI kit, if you're going to update the view, you have to do it on the main thread. And this is kind of where like schedulers and like cancelable comes in. Is that correct? Uh, schedulers, yes. Cancelable, not so much. Okay. Um, but let's talk about cancelable first because that is the easier explanation of, of what that is. Um, a cancelable really is an object that you get back uh, when you subscribe to the output for, of a publisher. Right, because okay. when you subscribe to a publisher, uh, you're setting up this relationship between them. Okay. The publisher will have a reference to the subscriber, and the, re- the subscriber has a reference to a publisher. Because a publisher will not send uh, values to a subscriber unless the subscriber asks for it. So they have to know about each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and to break this cycle, right, you need something. And that something is a cancelable. So a cancelable will hold on to an object or be an object. It's it's really transparent what it is exactly. And Apple doesn't want you to know what it is mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, but whenever you DL, uh, cancel a cancelable, it will tear down this relationship. Okay. Why is it important to have a reference to that cancelable when you've subscribed to a publisher? So if you don't keep that reference around and the cancelable is deinitialized, it will also tear down the relationship between publisher and subscriber. Okay. Right. So if you would fire off a network request and don't uh, don't keep the, the cancelable around, the network request will be canceled immediately. Where should you keep that cancelable? Just where you subscribe to it, or can you keep it like, for instance, if you're doing uh, Swift UI, can you just like keep it in your observed object or in your view, or what? Where can you put that reference? So. Uh, you would put it wherever the the logical owner of this relationship is. So this could be an observed object, right? If the, if the observed object has code somewhere that says, I'm going to make a network call now, or I'm going to set up this relationship. Uh, because what you need to keep in mind is that you want to tear down this subscription yep. okay. whenever its its owner is deallocated. So in, in SwiftUI, the, the boundaries are somewhat different because Combine is so tightly integrated with SwiftUI under the hood, it becomes somewhat complicated to talk about it without saying things where obviously there's a better built-in way in SwiftUI. 
but if you would consider a view controller, for example, you could have a UI slider that assigns values to some publisher, right? So some object that will publish values, and then a text field that subscribes to this value, to the slider's current value. And when you subscribe to that, then you have a very obvious owner of this relationship, which is the view controller, right? Mm-hmm. So whenever that view controller is deallocated, you don't want to update its label anymore because that makes no sense because the label is gone. Right. Uh, so, so you have to think of it like that. Like who should own this cancelable in such a way that the life cycle of this subscription is heavily tied to this object? Okay, that makes total sense. So could you just set that cancelable to nil in like your DNA or what should you be doing in order to make sure that the cancelable is torn is torn down? Right. So ideally you would put it in a set or an array of cancelable objects. So you you can tell combine to store a subscription inside of a set or an array, whichever fits better for you. Uh, I often use sets. And then whenever the view controller is deinitialized or the owner is deinitialized, it will automatically tear down the set, which will automatically tear down the cancelable. So you don't need to set anything to nil yourself. Uh, It's all handled for you by the framework if you just store uh, the cancelable somewhere. If you don't have multiple and you just want to store a single one, just put it on your view controller and it will be torn down on deinitialize. How about in a observed object? Uh, it should work the same way. Okay. I hadn't thought about using a set. Like I was actually having separate variables for each cancelable, but like having a set or an array, like that that's even that makes a lot more sense to be honest with you. <laughs> well, and easier yeah. to manage. Definitely. Especially when you have four or five cancelables that you're subscribing to. Definitely, yeah. It it really depends. Uh the only reason I would see to have multiple of these around is if you want to manage their life cycles independently, right? Right, exactly. Which you often yep. don't, uh, in my experience. Right, exactly. Yeah, because I'm doing stuff, uh, you know, I have the streaming app, Heart Twitch, uh, which has uses combined with HealthKit, and it's like I got to subscribe to authority um and i gotta subscribe to like heart rate changes and like if the workout started or not and things like that and so i was having all these separate property variables for different subscriptions and now it's like well now i can refactor all that into one individual uh array or set is there a particular reason why i'd want to go with a set or an array uh not really okay Uh, you typically are working with an any cancelable Right, just uh, some type erased object. Right. And those are hashable and they point to a single thing. So it's it's really not possible to have more than one instance of that exact any cancelable. So if you would put it in arrays, you won't get duplicates anyway. Okay. So there's really no reason to pick a set over an array or the other way around. I just like the implications of a set where it guarantees to hold on to things uniquely. Right. Yes, and I've read your article recently on sets, which I'll post in the show notes. And there's some really great points in that article that folks should check out. Because, uh, yeah, I started using sets with some stuff that are unique and needed to be hashable, and it, it makes total sense. Yeah, and when you want to store uh, an any cancelable, the easiest way is to call the store in operator after you subscribe. So when you subscribe to something in HealthKit, you probably use a sync 
Uh, and after you call sync, you can chain store in and then pass it your set as an in-out parameter. Oh, very cool. I didn't realize yeah. that. Um, very clean. I've been mostly using assign, and we'll talk about the differences between assign and, and yeah. sync. But it has that same store in operator, right, by the way. Right, because so. it returns any cancelable, and then any cancelable yeah. has a method called store in. Very cool. Exactly. All right, so here's the, here's the thing that um, we had talked about earlier that any developer who runs into when they're just doing UI kit is uh, updating the UI when they're not in the main dispatch queue. And this is yes. still an issue with combine uh, and Swift UI. And this is really where like schedulers come in, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And schedulers are a little bit weird in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, fun. <laughs> uh, because they, look and feel like an abstraction over threads, but they really are not one-on-one. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. So once you start to try and use them as if they are, you're going to run into problems where they might misbehave, even though they will probably do what you expect most of the time. So dispatch queues are schedulers, but I believe uh, operation queues can be schedulers too. Interesting. So that's where... Uh, you might run into trouble. However, in, in combined, the model is usually relatively simple, and that is that a subscriber will receive elements on the scheduler that the publisher generates the elements on. So if your subscriber or your publisher works on the main thread, you will receive values on the main thread. There are exceptions, however, like the data task publisher, the network one, you could kick that off on the main thread, but it will internally transfer off to a background thread and you will get your values on the background thread. Uh, but then you can tell Combine that you want to receive values from this uh, publisher on a certain scheduler. And you can use scheduler.main and that will automatically uh, go to the main thread and you can safely update your UI. Oh, very cool. I usually use dispatch main. Same thing, yeah. Which I like I like that you can just use scheduler.main. Yeah, I believe I I may be I may be mistaken here though. It could be dispatch main. Okay. I believe they they did add a couple of convenience things to scheduler if I'm not mistaken. Right. Now, besides updating the UI, is there any reason you'd want to schedule specific things on specific schedulers? If that makes sense. For sure, yeah. Yeah, so if if you want to do some complicated mapping or some expensive side effects like reading data from disk or writing data to disk, which arguably arguably you should not do in a map, but hey, some people might. <laughs> uh, um, then you could definitely say like, hey, uh, you know, take this off of the main th- uh, main thread, or you know, make sure that it's on some background queue or background scheduler so I don't block anything by accident. What happens if you don't set a scheduler? It will default to uh, whatever the publisher uses. So wherever the publisher decides to publish its values, which usually is the thread from which it started or generates its values on. Right, which is basically why you need to specify the main thread when you update the UI. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about Publishers, subscribers, cancelable, and scheduler. One thing that you notice is, uh, and this is even with Swift UI, uh, is the need to 
do what's called type eraser, um, which uh, I learned about uh, back in August when Rob Napier did a really great talk on type erasing uh, at 360 iDev. But it's used quite a bit with uh, SwiftUI and Combine. Uh, we have things like any publisher, uh, specifically any cancelable. Why is type erasure so important? So for, for Combine, it's mostly important because it's really two parts. So for the any cancelable, it's mostly that Apple wants to hide what the cancelable that you get back actually is and what it actually does. So for different publishers, they may have different kinds of objects that conform to the cancelable protocol. But that's important here that objects have to conform to the cancelable protocol. And because they, they don't want you to know what object you get exactly, they use type erasure. So they'll give you any cancelable, which really tells you like this is a concrete instance of something that conforms to cancelable, mm-hmm. but we hid it from you, right? It's, it's just a private property within the any cancelable and you don't know about it. You don't have to care about it. All you need to know is that you can cancel this thing. So that's one part. It's, it's Apple hiding their private implementation details from you. And then the other part is the any publisher where the reason that I use it for at least mostly is to hide ugly return types. So when you have a publisher that you map over and then you flat map over it and then you filter it, et cetera, et cetera, what you end up with is a publisher wrapped in a publisher, wrapped in a publisher, wrapped in a publisher. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So you're just going to to erase the type and be like, this is just any publisher and it will give you these values or these errors. And that's all you need to care about. Especially with the addition of like the sum uh, keyword, I could see how Apple has gone crazy with how uh, generic like protocols work. Because yeah. you look at some of these publishers that you can create and it's like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, you're not, it's not practical to use these type names and to be able to make sure that those type names are are used in specific functions where there are parameters. So like this is where like type erasure makes it a lot more convenient because yeah. you don't care if it's a adjust inside a map, inside a compact map, inside a flat map. You just want to know what does the publisher publish. Exactly. Um, and and that's where like type erasure becomes a lot more convenient. Exactly. Yeah. So so it's it's two parts. It's just hiding ugly return types and hiding implementation details. Uh, at least in the context of combine so when you have a publisher, you're going to need to somehow use that data to like either, for the most part, you know, updating a view, especially in Swift UI. And from what I've seen, there's two main ways of doing this, right? There's the sync where you pass in a method uh, to, to do something or, or a function or closure. And then assign where you pass in uh, a key value property to assign whatever value is returned. I don't know if there's any other ones, but why would you choose one or the other? Or are there benefits of one over the other? So uh, these are the only two uh, that I know of. So uh, your list is complete, I believe. Um, So yeah, when would you use one over the other? Um, Assign, I would say you, you should pick that if you are going to use a sync otherwise to simply assign, for example, text to a label, right? And if your uh, publisher outputs values that directly match to the property of the object that you want to set something on, then assign to is perfect because you can just say assign 
the output of this publisher to this key path on this object, and it will all work magically. Um, however, let's say you have a publisher that outputs strings, right? Just plain strings, and you want to assign that to a label where the label's text is an optional string. Assign to f- won't work because it only wants to assign optional strings, even though it has a value to this property. So then you would have to use a sync or map to optional string, which whichever you would prefer. It's a, a sync is much more flexible where you can do whatever you want. You have more of the power of Swift where it's, it's, it, it could be a lot smarter, right? Because you can assign a string to an optional string just fine. Just, just not when it's enforced by the, by the key path, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. Like usually I've run into the situation where I just end up mapping to an optional and then using a sign. I honestly, like if I've ever used sync, it's usually for debugging, lazy debugging purposes. Um, <laughs> than it is anything else, but like I pretty much have used a sign like 90% of the time. Um, because yeah. that's really what I need. Have you, that what, sounds about right. Yeah. I mean, what, what have you run into where you've used sync before? So the biggest, uh, reason for me when I don't use assign is if I want to assign to something on self and that is mostly because I'm working around a bug in combine at that point Yeah, yeah which see. is that if you uh, assign to a key path on self it creates a, a retain cycle Yeah, uh, that shouldn't be there and uh, that you also cannot break once it's established so that is one of the reasons that I work around it, I could also work around it by implementing uh, a different version of assign that weekly captures self, but I've been too lazy to copy paste that from the Swift forum. <laughs> uh, so I just use sync instead for those cases. Uh, and, and sync is useful if you, if you want to do something that's maybe slightly more involved or weird, where for instance, you fetch data and you want to cache that data into your core data database and then store that and then have some other publisher fire because your database changed and then you want to use that to drive the UI. That's also a good case for sync, I believe. Another very interesting one is to drive collection views. So when you are working with diffable data sources, you are probably going to want to have a sync where you accept whatever the new data is and create a new diffable data source snapshot that you apply to the collection view. Okay. Yeah, and you know, collection views are pretty powerful stuff, so that makes total sense. Yeah, yeah, like, and as you can hear, it's it's often when you want to do some some extra processing, right, or have some extra work to do other than just assigning to a UI component. Um, is either one more performant than the other? No. Okay. At least not that I know of, not that right. I've seen. So. I'm really curious about your history with reactive functional programming. Have you been doing reactive functional programming before you uh, began really deep diving into Combine after WWDC last year? I have. Uh, like we've been working uh, with it in our SDK at Disney for as long as I can remember. And I joined the company about, what is it, two and a half years ago now, almost. Okay. Uh, so for that time. So about a year... Yeah, about a year before Combine was even Yeah, and, and to be honest, I, I've never been a huge fan of functional reactive programming uh, before Combine. Like Once Combine came along, I started liking it much, much more. Mm-hmm. And the whole reason for that is uh, just Combine, in many ways, has simplified functional reactive programming a little bit. 
as opposed to how RX Swift worked. And it's it's all in the details and my personal preferences of how things should be named and how things should work and all that stuff. So it's very personal to me. But once I understood combined much better, RX Swift suddenly became ten times easier. Now, is there, there's like a reactive, um, how do I put it, like standard, so to speak, where like every reactive framework in whatever language follows the same terminology. Uh, is RX Swift like that, or is that is there like a different reactive uh, SDK or framework that follows the normal? standard quote-unquote naming conventions no d- definitely uh rx swift implements the reactive x common terminology okay uh, i believe that was developed by microsoft uh, a long time ago already yes um you have rx java rx js rx swift rx whatever and rx swift follows that specification pretty well Okay. So, yeah, because I remember uh, we had Alex on uh, a few months ago, Alex Bush, and he was saying, like, that's one of the issues he had with Combine was that it didn't follow that same naming convention, so to speak. Yeah. So I know some people in the older reactive communities were a little miffed by that. But, uh, you know, I mean, it sounds like you, you prefer some of the terminology that Combine uses. Definitely, yeah. You can really... Tell, I think, with some of the, the some of the, the things that happen in Arc Swift, and again, it's it's mostly naming. I think where you can just see that it's all derived from this greater spec that is cross-platform, which leads to a lot of portability and you know more a, a bigger team of people that can solve problems. If you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is a huge plus. But at the same time, I think Apple did a good job of diverging from that in a way that, to me at least, makes sense. And you have to look at it as its own thing, right? Um, Right. It wouldn't have made sense for Apple to write a beautiful Swift framework on top of this very, not necessarily Swifty definition of how things should be named or called or work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, and it, reactive programming has been around for quite a while. Like when we had Jason on, he was talking about mm-hmm. doing reactive objective C or working with that library and you know, it's it's not something that it, it's something that has definitely been mature as far as a framework or as an architecture type has been useful. What have you seen as like the big benefits to this new paradigm in comparison to like the way Apple has pretty much been doing UI development, which is this sort of MVC uh, model view controller pattern. I I think what Apple's been doing with all the work in general, I feel like it all fits together still in a very nice way. So even though Apple has been doing MVC for a while, the new stuff, unless you really want to put everything in a model view controller or view controller, you can integrate it quite nicely. I think so. And people have been. So I did that talk last year in Denver about comparing different asynchronous frameworks and how to do things everywhere from like actual threads, third classes to operation queues to um, dispatch queues uh, and using uh, GCD. But then uh, one of the things I found was that even I like combine, I like combine a lot. But I also find that it like doesn't fit with every single uh, asynchronous pattern when I want to do stuff. Uh, and specifically, like 
I do really miss, uh, like there, we'll get into like how there's a combined future, but it's really more of a future for using combined than it is for using promises. But I do kind of miss promises in a lot of ways. Do you find that as well to where you like sometimes a promise makes more sense or do you, what's your view on promises? I'm kind of curious. Yeah. Uh, great question. Um, I, I love promises for a very long time. I still do actually. Uh, they're a fantastic way of, of, you know, wrapping some uh, piece of asynchronous code. And in specific, there are, there are two things that I think make promises very powerful. I don't know if you agree, but one is that you can sort of chain them, right? You can say, do this and then this and then this. Well, it goes back to like what we were saying about functional programming. It's the yeah, same idea. Yeah, exactly. But you can also say like, hey, wait for this array of promises to complete and then give me all their results at once. And then I can use that, right? Mm-hmm. So if you would consider those two features to be like, you know, the, the two coolest things about promises, I think you can achieve the same in combined now by using, for example, publishers.merge by merging a couple of publishers together. Yeah, where you know you'll get the output from all of the publishers, or you could you know map over the outcome of a publisher. So even though they they give the same uh, features, I I still prefer the simplicity of a promise. Right, a promise is just a, a single fire thing. It's going to do something, and you can either get the result and use it, or tell it to do something else. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like the publisher subscriber model doesn't fit for everything, especially when it's a one, one time thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, unfortunately, like we have future in combined, but that's more for mapping a promise or some closure to combine as opposed to like using promises for promises sake. Yeah. And that's like one of the things that I miss. And I think, like you said, if you're doing something fairly simple, that is, you don't need like, multiple publishers and multiple subscribers, then it doesn't make sense to use combine and using promises makes a lot more sense in those cases. Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's, you have to make a choice. Like what you're, what you want to do. Like if you only want needed for like a single part in your app and you're already using a little bit of combine, I would say just do what you can with combine and use the features that make it as capable as promises. But if you're like, I don't want to use combine, but I would like to use promises in a bunch of places, then, you know, go and pull in like promise kit or whatever and use that. What do you use as far as promises is concerned? I use promise kit um, for, for, for the longest time. I looked at bolts, I think was one that, that was around a while ago by Facebook. Yeah, that's Facebook. Um, but I, I found that API to feel less standard or fluent Mm -hmm. or whatever the word is than promise kit. Yeah. So I preferred promise kit and uh, I never really went too deep in any other promise library just because promise kit the job so well. Who runs promise kit? Isn't it Max Howell? Okay. Yeah. I think you're right. Who does a ton of stuff. If you ever look at his stuff on GitHub, he's got some awesome stuff out there. Definitely. Uh, yeah, I did. I looked at, so I do like the, some of the vapor and backend stuff. So I looked at what Swift Neo provides, uh, which is pretty cool, but it's again, very specific to backend stuff and being able to use pooling threads and things like that. But, um, again, it like follows a lot of that function, functional paradigm. And then I also looked at Google's, 
uh, Google Futures, which is really sweet. I definitely recommend taking a look at that, um, which is very cool as far as how they do promises and futures. Um, but man, I, I'm looking forward to the day when there's like either Swift Neo's future stuff gets moved over to like foundation or some sort of uh, class or is made to be uh, more useful on the front end uh, or like Apple just comes out with a first party thing for futures and promises. I think eventually we'll get there. I mean, certainly with the syntactic sugar of async and await coming eventually down the pipeline in Swift, um, we'll, we'll get there at some point, but I do, I do miss it. Yeah, definitely. So, we're t- we talked about, you know, like we said, Combine provides a future, for instance, uh, for being able to take a promise and convert that over for use in Combine, which is really easy to do. Uh, but there is a lot of older, I don't want to say legacy APIs that Apple has provided in the past where um, you might want to convert those over or map those over to to use in combine especially if you're building a swift ui app luckily there are a few that apple has already built in right with like a data task publisher and timers and notifications correct yeah yeah so so apple has provided a bunch of those out the out of the box so so you can subscribe to notification center you know and get your reactive uh, keyboard will appear kind of uh, notifications uh, or you know network requests, which which I think was a, a wise decision to oh yeah add that, very cool uh, first party, but there's like you said there's also a lot that they didn't provide. However, like we, at least there is um, you can still subscribe pretty easily to like a key value property. Yeah. Um, so you even have that, like you probably, there's a lot of cases where you can just even get away with that. But then like the biggest one, uh, you know, especially with MVC is delegation. Like how do you take a delegate that you've built and map that over to use in combine? Yeah. So that's a, a very interesting one. And so far I have not found a single solution that would fit every delegate pattern. And that's mostly because delegates are sort of used in different ways. And also like some of the other process. So let me just name a couple. Uh, For example, if you have your location manager and your location manager delegate, what I would do for that is create some sort of object that will be the delegate for a location manager because you obviously still need to set up a delegate because Apple didn't replace them for you. Not yet. Um, and then, for example, the user's current location, I would make that a pass-through subject in Combine where you can subscribe to that. So every time the user's location is changed, the delegate is notified, and the delegate will update this pass-through subject that you can subscribe to to get the user's current location. Or if you want to have state on that, so if you want to be able to say, like, hey, what is the user's current location right now? or what was the last known current location, you could use a current value subject instead of a pass-through subject. So that's one way to, to use pass-through subjects and current value subjects to expose to properties that would otherwise be pushed to you to the delegate of a UI kit or uh, core location or whatever object. And then there's a couple of other ones like uh, UN User Notification Center which has the ability to get the user's current notification permissions, right? 
that one is sort of, I look at that one more as a, a single use operation. So I want, I want to get that now and I want to get it once. It's not something that if I want to fetch it, that I would be interested in future updates for. So in that case, I would probably use a future. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, with, with one big caveat in Combine's futures is that normally a publisher, because a future in Combine is, is a publisher, uh, a publisher normally does not perform any work until it has a subscriber. And so if you have a data task publisher, it will not issue any URL requests unless you subscribe to it by calling sync on it or assign to. If you would create an instance of a publisher and then call sync on it and then call sync on that same instance again, you will make two requests, right? Have you, have you noticed that ever? Yeah, I know you're exactly what you're talking about. All right. And, and then when you have a future, you can create an instance of a future and you will find that before you subscribe to it, the network call or the work within the future will be done. So when you sync on it, you will get the result of that operation that was performed immediately. And if you sync on it again, so if you subscribe to it a second time, you will get that same result again. So that's an important difference with a with a normal publisher where it will you know, wait for subscribers and then start work for every new subscriber. A future will start working immediately and only perform its work once and replay the result of that work to every subscriber it gets. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, yeah, so, so you have to be very careful that that is the behavior that you're looking for if you're using a future, which I think you are if you're going to use it for UN uh, User Notification Center. And it doesn't uh, matter if you're using current subject or pass-through subject? Uh, if, if, you, if you would use that with a future, you mean? Or? Yes, yeah. Okay, so, so those are completely separate from futures. Sorry if that was somewhat confusing. So a, a future is a publisher on its own, and a current value is a publisher on its own too, and so it's a pass-through subject. Yes, yes. Yes, you're correct. Yeah, like for instance, I've run into... Um, the, one, the one way I've been doing it, and I don't like it, um, and that's I might switch over to current uh, using current subject or pass through subject is using the uh, published decorator attribute. Are there benefits to using because that's really easy to work with, especially if you're doing Swift UI. But are there benefits to using current subject or pass through subject instead? Uh, so, so the three of them are are similar but slightly different. So you you have current value subject, which is the most similar to the published property wrapper. Their main difference is that a published property wrapper does not have a concept of failing with an error, right? Or completing at will. So whenever you want to, you could say, hey, this current value subject is now finished and it finished successfully or it finished with an error. And a published property wrapper will complete but it will only complete when it's deallocated right before the stream is torn down. So you cannot tell it that it's done or that it failed. Its API is slightly nicer to work with because you can directly assign things to the property and it will all work magically. And you subscribe to the dollar prefixed um, version of your property to get the subscribe uh, to get the publisher. Okay. Uh, but otherwise they are very similar. In fact, uh, the other day, I saw a test from someone where they uh, used the debug operator, I believe, on one of their subscriptions to see what was going on. And they used a, a published property wrapper for one of their properties. Uh, and they actually saw that it was internally a current value subject subscribing 
that they subscribe to. Okay. So, you know, it's, it, it uses the same thing, except it works slightly different. Are there any performance reasons why you'd want to use one over the other? Uh, I don't think so. No. Um, okay. No, maybe pass through subject versus current value subject where uh, current value subject will hold on to that latest value. Like if that is some sort of weird, expensive, right. huge object that you don't need to get more than once, then don't hold on to it. Just forward it as you know, a single fire pass through item. Um, yeah, but- that, that makes total sense. So yeah, I've been working with HealthKit um, and just using published properties because that essentially is going to end up being put in a UI. And so that made a lot of sense to just have a published property yeah. uh, on the watch um, and doing it that way. And then the other one I've been playing around with was uh, XML par- parser. I don't know if you've worked with the XML parser and the XML parser delegate, but oh my gosh, that API feels so dated. <laughs> uh, and moving that over to uh, combine is a really interesting exercise. Um, like I, I remember one of the first apps that I worked with was using uh, was parsing XML because this was before uh, JSON had really caught on and this was an Objective-C. And uh, yeah, ju- humping, jumping back onto that and like figuring out, okay, when does the element start? When does the element end? It's like, and moving that over to combine is quite the exercise. Um, <laughs> and uh yeah, it just makes it a lot easier than delegation. I think delegation had its place, but and especially it made more sense with Objective C, but with um, with Swift even like just passing in closures and, and functions just and doing it a functional way as opposed to delegation just makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. It's it's also because if you want to do per, per uh, pure Swift, you don't have. The ability to say, "Hey, this delicate method is optional" or whatever. So, um, e- even just having that through closures on the object that needs a delegate is much easier. Yeah. So we talked briefly about uh, futures and using that with core data. Um, how have you used core data with Combine? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I haven't done. Uh, a ton with core data and combine just yet uh, just a few small simple experiments to see like how it would fit uh, in my normal work because so I do use core data a lot and so to, to get like uh, managed object context that change notifications combine is perfect right you can just use the notifications in our publisher and um, you're going to get everything you need so that's fantastic and then for retrieving objects, uh, I have mostly been using futures because all of the other ones seemed to... Like, a future guarantees that it will do something only once. And even though it will do it immediately and is slightly awkward if you want to think about it as a normal publisher, I, I do believe that this characteristic of it will only do it once uh, fits retrieving data from a database. Okay. So that that's what I've been using. Uh, I have been considering to write a custom publisher for it mm-hmm. that will use like a real publisher mechanism instead of a future. But building your own publishers is is really complicated and something that Apple does not recommend. Yeah, that makes total sense. So when you talk about notifications, that's usually to watch for new data, and then when it talks about fetching, that's where you'd use a future. Is that correct? Uh, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. And speaking of using older APIs, and you talked about this briefly, but 
um, especially with collection view, can combine. How easy is it to use combine with older UI frameworks or older UI uh, APIs? Uh, obviously, combine came out with Swift UI, and it's really closely married. I guess uh, the two. But combine can actually be used if you're doing UI kit stuff or app kit stuff as well. Is that correct? It definitely can. Yeah, combine is is a, is a framework of its own, and and it holds its own very well, uh, even without Swift UI there. So you could definitely use it. Uh, one major downside that I have found is that Apple did not ship it with any bindings for UI kit or app kit components. So that means that even though you have this um, uh, key value observer kind of publisher that you can use. It doesn't always work for all UI kit components. Uh, to give you one example is, is a slider has its value property and the compiler will let you create a publisher for that value, you know, for that key path. And you will be updated whenever that changes. But it uses the normal old school KVO mechanism for that. And UI control subclasses are not KVO compliant. So you'll never get updates for that slider value, even if it changes. Uh, so it looks very easy to use with Combine, but in fact, it's never going to work as you want it. Luckily, the um, the community around uh, Combine has shipped a couple of very convenient helpers to you know, let you subscribe to certain uh, UI control events. So that's very nice. Cool. We'll provide a link in the show notes to that. Yeah. Definitely. It's, it's very nice. Is it, how about the other way around where you want to update the UI? Can you do like assigns or do you need to use syncs in order to update specific UI controls? No, you can definitely use uh, the assign to. Um, okay. As long as it allows you to write something to a key path, it'll be fine. So, so that goes way outside of the whole KVO restriction. And that's very nice. Nice. So do you think Combine is going to be standard in all iOS apps? Um, you think it's going to just be used everywhere? Or do you think there's still going to be a community of folks where Combine just is not the, the right fit? So that's an interesting question. Um, I think that because Combine is first party um, and it's integrated with some of Apple's own components and it's even integrated in SwiftUI so well, I think that it's it's definitely going to have its place amongst default tools. However, just like, you know, core data is not a perfect fit for every app or you know, using core location is not a perfect fit for every app or not every app needs core location because not every app needs to access location. I think combined will sit there as well. But there might be apps that are so small or so simple that you know, just like adding combined wouldn't help anything. But I, I think folks that need something like Combine will be able to grab it very easily. So in that term, yeah, I think it will be everywhere. Um, I do think there will still be apps where it's maybe not the right fit. What do you think are some use cases where that's true? Where it's not the right fit? Yeah. So oh, that's a tough one. Um, so let's say all you want to do is fetch some data from the network and list that in a table view. I think maybe... There and also depending on your, you know, your own skill level. Like I would personally still use Combine for that because I'm comfortable with it. Uh, I could see somebody who is, you know, just six months into learning iOS development and just learned how to do a table view properly, just learned auto layout, or you know, just 
familiarized themselves with SwiftUI really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could see these folks thinking Combine is just just a bit too much, and I think with them not using Combine for something that simple, they're not missing anything yet. It's not like they're doing something very complicated and, and convoluted where Combine would make it easier. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, like, especially if you're also using, going back to our discussion about third party libraries, if you're already using a third party library, kind of like how, like, somebody who's using Realm, like, they're not going to necessarily use the latest and greatest when it comes to core data. Uh, somebody who's using a specific reactive library, they're not going to gain anything. And it's probably going to be an uphill battle to convert everything to combine for sure yeah. uh, very quickly. So it's kind of like the same case in that, in that way. Yeah. So if you're like a manager or a CTO and you have an existing app, what would you recommend if like, should they transition slowly to combine? Would you recommend that they just adopt it? Should they maybe like use OS version checks to maybe use combine for new features? How would you, what would you recommend as like a good strategy for adopting combine in your current projects? So the first thing I, w- I would recommend is to, Start looking at it, right? Maybe not decide if you're going to use it or not. But first, you know, start looking at it. Uh, maybe rebuild a re- very small portion of your app and see if if Combine fits in what you need, what you like, what you want to work with. Uh, I would say also take a look at like your horizon for when would you be able to go full Combine. Like if you're currently supporting iOS 9 and for the foreseeable future, we'll be like four or five OS versions behind. I think doing more than just looking at combined right now probably doesn't make the most sense because it's going to take so long before you're going to be 100% combined. However, if you're currently on like iOS 12 and you're looking at dropping support for iOS 12 around October this year, I, th- I think you're definitely in a place where you can make the choice like, do we want to start using combine right like do we want to convert some of our current imperative code to be reactive for using rx like you can start looking at do we want to get rid of rx are we having any problems with rx i think that's important too like if you're not having any problems right now and it doesn't look like combine is going to give you much then maybe don't do it Mm -hmm. Uh, but the only way to find that out is to really look at your own specific case and consider like you know, the the consequences for your code base. I think I would not go for too many like OS version checks, mostly because that means that you now have two code paths to maintain for the same feature. However, if you're going to do like some screen on uh, on your app that, you know, depends on some feature that's only in iOS 14 or only in iOS 13, I think maybe for that feature, you know, where you're going to hide the feature for older OS versions anyway, maybe there you can just go all in on combined, see how it feels. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. Um, are there any like good frameworks out there or tools that people can use to like slowly patch over the app as they transition to combine? I've not seen such a tool. Um, I do know that there is a very good um, RX Swift to combine cheat sheet out there that I think we should add to the show notes uh, for folks who are interested in that. Okay. Yeah. Because cool. That really shows you like a list of uh, this is what you would do in RX and this is what it looks like in Combine. Or even if it's not there in Combine at all, it will just you know, give you a nice overview. Um, so, an even easier case might be is if you're starting a, a project from scratch and you're willing to deal with the limitations of your audience only using iOS 13 and up. 
uh, in those cases, would you recommend combine? Uh, well, that, that kind of depends. So other than Swift UI, you know, opposite to Swift UI, actually combine works well, right? I haven't seen any deal breaking bugs like Swift UI still does contain. So I think it's pretty safe to say, hey, I want to use Combine on this project, and I'm 100% sure. However, if somebody is paying you to work on the project or whatever, that to me changes things a little bit. You don't want to spend too much time learning and experimenting on somebody else's time, essentially. Mm -hmm. But if it's a personal project, 100% go for it. If you're curious about Combine and it's, it's your own personal project, don't let anything stop you and just try it. Well, what if you're a manager, though, and you're making that decision whether to go with SwiftUI and Combine, and you're willing to deal with the fact that it's only going to be on iOS 13 and up, uh, would you use Combine in those cases? Or do you think it's just not really ready for like a fully production app in those cases? Oh, it, it's absolutely ready. I think you can do everything you need to do with Combine. Albeit like some small parts are maybe missing, right? Like UIKit bindings for UIKit elements, where you can get the changes to those, or or that kind of stuff, but nothing deal-breaking. So if I were a manager, and I think at that point, the most important bit would be, is the, the engineering team comfortable with learning this new framework right now? Oh, yeah, there and you if go. they have to bandwidth for that, like if there's bandwidth for learning, then absolutely go for it. Well, if they need to learn it, they just need to find a really good book on like learning combined. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you knew, uh, if you if know only. anybody, yeah, if only. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. So we've talked uh, quite a bit on the show about test-driven development. Um, one of the challenges I've seen with Combine is being able to do that. What are some good practices for having like good unit tests when you're doing Combine? Yeah, so so far what I have been seeing, and it's the same for, for Xcode that I've been working with, is try and test it as if it's not using Combine at all. Okay. And what I mean by that is test it like you would any other asynchronous code, right? Okay. Use Xcode expectations, right? Fulfill them in your sync. Uh, and like the sync should really be the only combined part that you use. If, if you're starting to map over things or filter things, you know, use combined functional operators, you're probably doing something wrong because at that point you are testing combined. Well, you, what you really want to do is, you know, if I subscribe to this publisher and I, make it do something, do I get the value at the end that I expect? Okay. So in other words, use like protocol-oriented programming to abstract away uh, yeah. certain APIs. And then, possible. and then whatever publishers you're creating and combine, subscribe to those and use sync and then X, uh, expectations in the XT uh, test stuff, XC test stuff to uh, see if like you're actually getting those values. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. That, and that's like that a really is, good, go back, like that's a really good case where sync makes total sense. Absolutely, yeah. So we talked a bit about like using Combine uh, with existing apps. What, as far as like using it for older, obviously it's not supported for older OSs or server side. Is there any um, plans uh, for supporting that you think in the future? I, I don't think so. Um, I also haven't seen I believe anything convincing from the community at this point that would be a drop-in replacement for these older OSs for Combine. So I, I think we're just going to be stuck without Combine for, for a while if, if you have to support older OSs. On the server side, I think it's it's a shame that Apple 
as Tide combine into iOS uh, or into the Apple platform ecosystem so tightly uh, because it's also there on Mac OS. But uh, I don't think they will open it up to you know the, the more general Swift population, even though I really hope they do. I, I doubt it. Really? Why is that? It's because it's it's kind of been Apple's history to not do too much of that, even though recently they have, I believe, uh, updated uh, or open source the um, uh, what is it, Swift Crypto stuff or Crypto Swift? So, so that there is there is a chance, but uh, I, I don't know because a lot of like stuff has slowly not so much opened up, but at least there's it's supported on the server. For instance, like a lot of the foundation stuff has slowly moved over. You think like you think it would be would it be too difficult to at least make some of it open so that way the community can create its own uh, combine for the server. Um, because I, you know, there's a lot of great use cases to where combined would make sense for publishers and subscribers. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I, I don't think there's a very good reason for Apple not to, other than Apple just being Apple. Right. Right. Cause I mean, you don't have to open up all of it. Like you're saying no. with, with any cancelable, for instance, obviously they're trying to hide something for good reasons. But then, like, there are cases where, you know, you could at least open a, a, enough of it to where the community can, like, patch any holes uh, that exist in functionality. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think most of the things that Apple wants to, to hide are just things to protect you from using implementation details that they need to make whatever publisher work correctly. And like a, a data task publisher or a notification center publisher, those two, like they can keep those, right? We we don't want those on Swift on a server, right? Exactly. So th- just keep keep those details, keep the secrets, but just give us the sauce. I totally agree with that. I don't think they will anytime soon. Maybe once everybody is like on iOS fourteen fifteen, mm-hmm. um, maybe they just want to wait until adoption is high enough. But I don't know. Hard hard to say. So if you're going to build your own publisher and subscriber from scratch, how would you go about doing that then? So uh, th- that is a very tough one. I, kn- I know some people have done it, and I, I have talked to uh, a certain Apple employee who explained to me that Apple really thinks that you should not make your own publishers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the reason for that is that Apple or, or Combine uses this, uh, it's called back pressure driven subscription model where subscribers will tell publishers that they are ready to receive new values. Mm, okay. Uh, or they, they will tell a publisher that they only want to receive three values or four values or, you know, like sync and assign unlimited values. Okay. And to carefully honor that contract in your publisher, right, to make sure you don't flood your subscribers uh, requires quite a bit of knowledge of how everything works. And it, it's really hard to get right. That said, I do think that for certain simple publishers, like, for example, getting the value of a slider or getting button taps you know, or subscribing to UI control events in general is not that sensitive and it's doable. So what you do is you create publishers, uh, an object that conforms to the publisher protocol and you go over all of the required methods to implement your own subscription, which will tie publisher and subscriber together and you create a subscriber uh, or an object that conforms to a subscriber. And with those three objects, you can 
make very complicated, cool things. Yeah, I'm looking through your book, uh, Practical Combine, which is awesome. Um, and you go into detail, like specifically how to patch this issue over with UI control, uh, specifically like with a slider, for instance, that you can create publishers. People should definitely check this book out. Uh, I'll provide a link in the show notes. But it's some really interesting stuff, and I think it makes sense in some cases, like you said, where you're just patching functionality over that is missing in Combine. Definitely. Yeah, it's mostly be very careful when you want to ship these custom publishers to people that are not you, because they might expect it to work in a certain way, and you may have gotten a detail wrong. Do you think that issue is mostly like people using your API or could there be like app store acceptance issues when it comes to this stuff? It's probably mostly uh, people using your API and running into uh, unexpected bugs because you've got a detail wrong. Okay. So I don't think the app store will, will ever care. reject you over it. Yeah. Yeah. So before we get into talking a bit about your book and the process of writing your book, um, what have you found are some good tips for debugging your own code uh, when you're using combine or not using combine properly. Oh yeah. Uh, so there's, there's two ways that I have been using to dig into my code with combine. One is to use combines debug operator. Uh, so just like map and whatever you can, you can slap a debug on there and that will print to your console, a bunch of information about, subscribers, like how the subscription is set up, the number of values that are requested, the number of values that are sent down to stream. So that's a very useful tool. And then another one that I really love, uh, made by uh, Marin Todorov, I, th- I believe his name is pronounced like that. Uh, he built a tool called Timelane, and that tool visualizes your publishers and subscribers and instruments. And that has been super valuable to see how things work and to also make it very obvious when things or why things don't work the way you maybe think they should work, right? You can just visualize all the timelines, all the publishers. It looks really cool. Yeah, we'll definitely provide um, show, show notes and links yeah, to that it's, as it's well. Also, uh, it's also covered in, in one of the chapters in my book because I just felt like it's such a useful tool that it needed its own little section. What are some tips that you have when it comes to performance with Combine? Like, what can somebody do when they're using Combine um, and kind of abuse abuse it? So, one thing is to try and make sure that you don't create any reference cycles like you can with uh, assigned to on self. So, measure, test, gain insights, just like you would with any other code. And also keep in mind that whatever you do in a map, runs every time the publisher emits a value, right? So it's it's not run only once. So if you have a publisher that emits a lot of values in in high uh, volume, you are going to want to make sure that you don't do any expensive processing in your map because that will sort of, you know, block the whole thing if you're unlucky. Uh, and again, you'll find that by measuring your code, you know, using instruments on it, and just uh, keeping a careful eye out. I don't think there's anything obvious that is inherent to combine, right? There's no huge combined pitfalls in a performance area that I have seen, at least, other than anything that would apply to any other aspect of your code. Yeah, I agree completely. So I've been looking over your book over the um, past couple of weeks, and it's 
pretty thorough as far as like how people can use combine. I really, really um, enjoy it. And I'm going to be thanks taking some of these tips and applying them to my current apps that use combine. Um, so kudos to writing that book. That's awesome. Uh, it's, it's funny at the end of the book, you talk, the other book that I purchased, uh, was, uh, Joseph Heck's book as well, yeah. which is also a really great resource. If you're jumping into combine, like some of his stuff with testing is, is great. And those, those would be probably like my two primary resources is your, your book and series of blog posts and stuff that, um, Joseph has out as well what made you want to write this book? And like, did you test this idea before you jumped in and wrote the book? Uh, I, I tested the idea mostly through my blog. Uh, I, I came up with the idea of, of learning and writing about combine um, end of last year. So I, I decided that I would write about combine for a month, which I did in January, which is what sort of built the category page for combine on my blog. And I found that there were folks that, that were very interested in, in that and in the way that I explain things. And I, I have read uh, uh, a hex book and the Ray Wendelick combined book, and they're both really good, but they don't fit w- uh, well with the way that I like to learn and the way that I like to uh, integrate things in my code. So I just felt that, you know, just like with some other uh, topics that it's sometimes good to write it down, like in, in the way that you would prefer to learn it. Uh, which is what I did in my blog. People like that. So I just took that style and figured that, you know, folks would probably be interested in a whole book teaching them like, okay, so this is combined and I'm not going to bother you with all the smallest of details. Instead, I'm just going to show you how to use this and explain you things that you need to know as we go. That's sort of what I try to do with the book. Did you uh, build an audience beforehand before you went ahead and said, yes, I'm going to write this book? Or were you just like, nope, I got good numbers as far as people coming to the website and reading this stuff. Uh, I'm just going to move forward with writing the book. Yeah, I, I really decided to write the book based on the the audience I knew that I have on Twitter and and on my blog. I did tease with a, with a little tweet. I don't remember what the content was exactly. I, I think I wrote like the outline for four or five chapters, like, you know, two sentence, three sentence blurbs for every chapter. And I, I believe I screenshotted that and sent it on Twitter, like, like good idea or what? And I got a few retweets and a whole bunch of likes. And I figured, okay, sounds like it's pretty much what I expected. Like there, there's a bunch of people out there who would like to read this book by me. And so I went ahead and, and wrote it and it's, it's been doing really well. So I'm very happy. How did you start by uh, organizing the content of the book? Because Cambine obviously is pretty massive. Like, what yeah. made you realize, okay, this is this chapter or this section of the book is going to be about this? Like, how did you organize your content? So, the first thing I tried to figure out is before I talk to anybody about Combine, right? Before I can explain anything, what are the things you need to know, or what are the things that I think people should be asking me? So, I started with just a whole list of questions, right? Like what is combined? What is functional reactive programming? And then things like, you know, how do I use this in a UI? How do I get uh, UI events? How do I get notification center things? What about all my other code? And so I started grouping those questions a little bit and it really shaped up into this sort of these logical little uh, similar kind of questions that I would imagine somebody would have 
that then turned into chapters that turned into chapter outlines that turned into, you know, a whole book. And of course you do a lot of shuffling after you create that initial list. Right. Uh, but it, it's a good starting point, I think, to determine which questions you want to answer. Because as you are writing a chapter, you can look back at the questions and be like, hey, <laughs> I think I missed a question or hey, I think I just confused people a lot. Like if, if you would ask me this and this is my answer, like you have one question and now you have 20, which could be good. Like if, if that's what you're trying to set up, but it could also be uh, disappointing if that's not what you're trying to set up. Right. Did you have some sort of like um, outside editing or like beta testing on the book uh, in order to make sure everything was good before you went ahead and published it? Uh, I did a little bit of that. I first planned to release the book on March 31st and reach out to a couple of people like one and a half weeks before that. But then just at the last moment, I decided, okay, so the book's done and I'm just going to sit on it for two weeks now. Why would I do that? I'm just going to ship it next week. And then I remembered, oh, wait, I should probably get a few people to look at it. Uh, so I sort of sent it over on a, a Friday afternoon to a, a handful of friends like, hey, can you just look at this and tell me if it's any good? Like, oh, when do you need feedback? It's like, yeah, I'm publishing it on Tuesday. So <laughs> just review whatever you can. Yeah. And they, they actually responded to it really well. And uh, everybody reviewed like one or two chapters. And yeah, they loved the idea. They loved the way uh, I wrote it. So I went ahead and uh, shipped it. Yeah. So yeah, that's I, I could have probably used like the the week after they had reviewed it to make small changes, but overall it's been really good. And the cool thing about an ebook is that you can always, you know, add chapters uh later. So that's obviously what I'll be doing for some stuff around when iOS fourteen comes yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that's the benefit of digital publishing is you can even publish it absolutely pre ahead of time and like Make updates to it uh, accordingly, and, and that's fantastic. Do you have any ideas of uh, what content, blog content, or even book you might want to write in the future next? Oh, that's a really tough one. Um, I am considering to learn Vapor 4 a lot, and uh, probably going to be doing that in the next couple of months to play with it, see if I like it. Um, also see what kind of resources are out there, so... I think at this time, if I would have to say, like, I might be writing about that in the next six months, I think that would be it. But I haven't looked into it enough yet to, you know, be sure whether it's something that I feel comfortable writing about. Uh, otherwise, I really have no idea what I would publish next. Well, I'm glad to hear that your interest in Vapor 4, you can be my beta tester when I update my, <laughs> my Vapor 3 articles. Um, oh, yeah, I will. Send, send them over. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Donnie, uh, to come on the show. Where can people yeah. find you and your book? So they can find me on uh, on Twitter with my handle, Donnie Walls, just my full name. Um, for the Practical Combined book, it's just practicalcombined.com. Uh, it has a few of the, the very convincing testimonials from some faces you might know. Uh, if you doubt whether... Uh, the book's any good, they can attest to to what they think of it at least. And uh, yeah, you can just go straight onto Gumroad and get it from there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been fantastic. Yeah, thanks for having me.
People can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion and my company's at Bright Digit. Uh, if you have any questions about Combine or you have any questions for Donnie, uh, let us know. We'd love to hear about them on Twitter. I'd love to hear your feedback on this podcast episode as well. And any positive re- reviews would be super helpful for me. Uh, you can find the podcast on Apple Podcast. Uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other places. Thank you again, Donnie, for coming on the show. And we will look forward to talking to everybody again. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Leo. <laughs>